everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. How are we doing this week, Linnea? We are doing great this week. It was it's a busy a, week. It's a busy week, but it's a, it's a good week. It was just Labor Day. Yeah. We just had a little holiday. Had some time off labor. Um, <laughs> yep. Very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, and your brother was just in town. Yeah. He's I moving have, here. I know. That's so I, exciting. There are more McNuts congregating in the city of Halifax. And I love that. Yeah. He was, it was funny because he was, he was walking around downtown and like Halifax is very, it's probably the only part of the province that gets a lot of people from other provinces to, to like move there and live there. To move and live. Yeah. yeah. I'd say. Especially yeah. students. Oh and yeah. So now with like school back, we have a lot of people coming back who should be quarantining and stuff mm-hmm. for their two weeks. But in this context, we will just assume that this person had already done that. Yeah. Um, and so my brother was walking around and there was this guy behind him and he was talking to his girlfriend or somebody and she was asking him about Nova Scotia and he was just so clearly not a Nova Scotian, <laughs> like explaining Nova Scotia to this girl. And she was just like, oh yeah, so what's the province like? He's like, well, there's like under a million people and half of them live in Halifax. <laughs> and she was just like, Oh, okay, cool. So, like, what's the rest of the province like? And he's just like, it's all pretty trashy. (laughs) My older brother just, like, turns around and, like, looks at him (laughs) and then just walks across the street and walks away. Yeah. Which is just, like, so typical. But, you know, that's, I think that's a lot of people from other countries kind of idea of Canada and that it's, like, Toronto or Ottawa. Like, you know, you know the, like, capital city that you've, like, had a layover in and you're, like, well, like, everybody lives here. Or Vancouver. I think that's a good example, too. Montreal, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Like, half the country lives here and then everybody else lives other places. It's, like, oh, like, what are those people, like, trashy. Trashy. It's just, like, all trash. It's just rednecks. (laughs) They hunt moose and stuff. Like, the show Letterkenny. If you're not from Canada and you need a good idea of the trash we're speaking of. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's an uh, honest representation of rural Canada. Obviously exaggerated, but Exaggerated, but very authentic. That is a great (laughs) word. And it's just so typical Canadian. It's like, oh, it's such a good show. So funny. I'm looking forward to the episode... Um, where we get to talk about Jared Kiso because oh. he's in a Heritage Minute. And so we can and talk about Letterkenny in that episode. <laughs> he is a beautiful, beautiful man. I find him very, very attractive. Oh. But he is married, and so I yeah. will, you know, keep it to myself. Yeah, but I mean... telling everyone on this we podcast. We can still look. <laughs> we can still look. Sorry to Mrs. Kiso. Yeah, you're um, a lucky lady. We respect your <laughs> your relationship yeah. with your husband. Um, you're great. Yeah. We wouldn't want to... To, to disrupt anything, no. obviously. Just fangirls over worthy. here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what are we talking about today? So, speaking of rural Canada, okay. um, today I think we are doing... It's not rural teacher, because... It's not rural teacher. I already teacher. did that one. I do think this one, though, is like the epitome of Western rural Canada. Uh, okay. We're doing the Saudi Heritage Minute. Do you know what the Saudi is? No. So a Saudi is a sod house. Oh, I, I know this episode, yes. This is a prime, <laughs> oh, melodramatic, classic 90s. Minute. Like, this is, I thought, th- this <laughs> has the same feeling as, like, that Laura Secord or, like, the midwife yeah. one. Like, it just, everybody seems so strained in this hair. Constantly <laughs> stressed. Though I do think this is one of the few that, I think they do, uh, A, a pretty good representation of, like, what the process of building a sod house would have been like, at yeah. least from a social standpoint. Yeah. Um, but it's also, like, the added dimensions of like 
uh, of melodrama. So for some reason, if anything's sad in Canada, <laughs> there's a Gregorian chant in the background. Yeah. Like that is the soundtrack <laughs> of Canadian sadness. It's just like, oh, da, da. <laughs> well, like, oh, God. or or if it's really sad, a children's choir. A children's choir. They love choir. to throw that shit yeah. into Christmas <laughs> hymnals. It's like, you know. Yeah. It's like you've just got a Christmas song happening and bam, a children's choir. And now it's real. Now it's hitting you hard. Like you are crying the on tears your knees. Are welling up. Yeah. Oh, like that Christmas shoes song. I don't even know if that's Canadian, but No. We yeah. Uh, oh, that was traumatizing for me as it a is child. Devastating. I was like, why are this is not Christmas? And then <sighs> they made it a movie. <sighs> I was like, there's no joy in that. There's but anyway. No back house. to the heritage minute. If you haven't seen this one, I recommend watching it. Yeah. But it's so it seems like based on their vague accents, <laughs> it's two Eastern European or yeah. German people as a couple, and they're building a sod house. <laughs> my dad, my dad told me when I was little, I'm remembering this now, <laughs> that they were Amish. That's what <laughs> Amish people sounded like. <laughs> Amish people. Like, it's also like no Amish people in the prairie. My dad. Really. I'm sure there's some. But. I I love my dad. Like he's a really good guy. But like he grew up in a very rural community, and he just I don't know. Like he I was just like, what are they? And he just didn't have an answer. So he was just like, oh, they're just Amish. Amish. <laughs> it's also totally the dad answer of I don't want to engage yeah. with this question. It's like oh, they're Amish. They're just Amish, know. you know. <laughs> And so they're just building this sod house and it's the prairies, so the weather is terrible and they're just like, yeah. it's like raining and then the woman almost gives birth yes! to a child yes! randomly, but then she doesn't, like she just stops being in labor. Little Braxton and Hicks, they you know? finish building the house <laughs> and then they finish the sod house and then they like hug and kiss and he like carries her into the home and it's very oh, sweet Oh yeah, over the, the threshold. Yes. Yeah, super cute. Yeah. So it, I think it's a cute heritage minute. It is. It's, it's. You know, it hits the nail on the head but for everything does. I love. It has that like hymnal chant in the <laughs> back, which is <laughs> it's just like, and then somebody like happening? he like slips or like she like almost has the baby, like yeah, yeah. And she's always like, he's like, oh god, I'm I'm a man and God, I'm tired. <laughs> and she comes and she's like, I did the cooking over this fire. Let's eat it and and be happy. And they and that's what they do. Drink some more. I don't tea. know why they're Texas now. <laughs> I don't. I the little lady. <laughs> So we're going to go into the history of kind of like a very general overview of Canadian Western expansion and immigration um, and essentially the policies that were put in place that result in people coming and building sod houses. Okay. <laughs> because the sod house, like the reason there's a heritage minute about it is because it's it's more of like a symbol. Like it falls in line with almost the ones about like the Canadian flag and maple syrup. Yeah. Like for people on the prairies, it's this icon of prairie life and the hardships of prairie life and as we'll get into it's not even like the most common form of house built on the prairies but it's just like it's really romanticized and like there's a strong deep affinity for it yeah yeah and i and i don't even know if i fully understand the construction of the sod house because i know there's wood involved yeah but then also like moss yeah, little well, sod. I have a little bit about how they're constructed. Oh, I'm excited. Um, I'm so ready. Let's this is now dive an architecture right podcast. <laughs> Let's deep dive. Let's deep dive. So, following Confederation in 1867, which created the Dominion of Canada in four provinces, sure did New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Quebec. Mm-hmm. The Canadian government turned its attention west. Oh, the Western Prairies offered a wealth of untapped resources. Agriculture, <laughs> mining, and oil can make Canada incredibly wealthy. Yep. 
Sure can. And so from 1867 to 1914, the Canadian West opened for mass settlement and became home to millions of immigrant settlers seeking a new life. The prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta grew rapidly in these years as settlers began to transform the barren prairie flatland and establish unique cultural settlements. Many motivations brought immigrants to Canada, greater economic opportunities and improved quality of life, an escape from oppression and persecution, and opportunities and adventures presented to desirable immigrant groups by Canadian immigration agencies. Hmm. Those are some of my favorite, like, Canadiana or uh, the posters that were made to, like, sell the Canadian West. Yeah. It's, like, very typical, like... Like these just rolling hills. Yeah. And no mosquitoes. No. <laughs> it's like, look at this woman. She loves it. <laughs> She's so happy. Look how blonde and happy she is. <laughs> Who's the, there's a comedian who just did a tour here, like right before COVID happened, like through Canada. Jim G- G- oh, Gaffin? Or yeah, G- Gaffin, G- maybe? Or Gaffin? I know who you're talking he's about. He's got a hilarious bit about how he's like, so his whole thing is he did this tour in Canada, and so he talks about Canada from the perspective of like an American, but it's actually funny. He does a really good job of being <laughs> actually funny about it and making Americans out to be pretty dumb, which is always Canadians love that shit. Oh, yeah. Um, and he says this whole bit about, he's like, you know, you think when they were just drawing the map of Canada, they were getting really detailed, and then they just got tired. <laughs> and then they're just like uh, uh. <laughs> square blocks at the end. Yeah, they just Very like true. drew the Maritimes and were like, "Ooh, this is fancy." And then they <laughs> and then they got over and they're just like, "Oh fuck it, my wrist hurts." Yeah, <laughs> but then they got the wind back for the for the territories, you know. And they were like, "Little islands everywhere." <laughs> yeah, he's funny. You should check it out. He's good. Yeah, but yeah, the prairies are quite large. And flat. And barren. And barren. <laughs> from the perspective of a maritime. Yeah, from the perspective of a maritime. Yeah. To me, they feel like very agoraphobic. Like, I yeah. don't know what I'd do if I couldn't find water. Like, yeah. I, I, I have found in all my worldly travels that when I go to a city, as long as it has a harbor or some, it's built mm-hmm. around a body of water, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at, like, finding my way around. Yeah. But, like, Toronto... Um, Calgary, they're very grid yeah. system, which technically is easier. Yeah. But my little my little maritime brain is just like, but where's the harbor? But where is it? Where do I find the boardwalk? Where do the boats go? <laughs> um, and like BC and even Alberta, I mean, they have, like in Alberta, there's like mountains and lakes yeah. and that type of stuff. But man, those middle prairie provinces, I just... I get, get like, nervous. weird about them. <laughs> but I've heard people from the prairies say, like, they look at the ocean and they're like, that's agoraphobic. Like, where do you go? Yeah. Like, you run, you've, or I guess it's claustrophobic. Like, you've run out of land. Where do you go? And yeah. it's like, no, it's fine. It's as great. As you know where the water is, yeah. you know where you are. Yeah, duh. Duh. So the process of settlement, whenever we talk about settlement, is always twofold. So while... For a large part of Canadian history, we focused on the European influx as it explains, and and we're going to talk about that a lot today because it explains the reason why we have the symbol Mm -hmm. of the Saudi for the most part. The other part of this story is the active displacement of indigenous peoples who inhabit the prairies. So when they say these big barren spaces of land, it's like, no, there are people there. Well, yeah. Welcome to history. Welcome to history. (laughs) So as my little like asterisk 
I'll just say that government agencies advertised a cleared empty land to prospective settlers, which was far from the reality. Yeah. So they took it upon themselves to make it a reality. Yeah. The Northwest Mounted Police were formed in part to manage unreasonable, quote unquote, indigenous peoples through violence and coercion. They moved indigenous people off their traditional lands and relegated them to small, infertile reserves. Life on reserves was full of suffering and oppression. Wait, wait, wait. Police brutality existed slash exists in Canada? It's almost like that's what the police were created to do. Oh, my God. It's so weird. (laughs) The government purposefully neglected communities and tried to crush their traditional ways of life through the implementation of residential schools and agricultural programs. So any story of Canadian immigration is also simultaneously a story of cultural genocide. And it's important to remember this undercurrent as we discuss the arrival of Europeans and their settlement of the prairies. Yep. So and of course, like people get offended when you bring that up because they're like, my grandparents were like Irish immigrants who came to this country with two dollars in their pocket. You're telling me that they're oppression, like their system, they're part of the system of oppression. Yes, they are. But that's not a comment on them like they don't deserve to be poor and they (laughs) didn't i mean yeah they don't deserve to be poor and i'm not saying that you know your grandparents weren't totally innocent in coming to the prairies like Mm -hmm. i mean people knew at that time that there were you know indigenous and aboriginal people yeah in these places but again we talk about it you know history's over and history has happened and we have a new lens and a new approach to things and it's just it's just what happened like just how it was and in a lot of cases when you talk about those people it's like if anything those people are probably the most sympathetic to what's happening because they were forced out of their country exactly by a similar machine yeah that is forcing these indigenous people off their land exactly and so i think it shouldn't be looked at as a point of like conflict it should be looked at as a point of like oh look we have so much in common with these people like we can share a story exactly and i think that's ultimately what can connect people we're not hating on your grandma calm down we're not hating on your grandma chill out (laughs) that's gonna be a (laughs) t-shirt we're not hating on your grandma (laughs) so the immigration boom leading up to 1914 was one of the most important periods of canadians population growth Significant changes occurred in Canada after 1867 that made the prairie migration boom possible. The construction of a transcontinental railroad made transportation and travel accessible. The Dominion Lands Act of 1872 created free and fertile homesteads for settlers. The establishment of the Northwest Mounted Police in 1876 guaranteed the safety of prairie residences. And the creation of the Department of the Interior in 1876 attached hardworking immigrants to the region. So you have all of these things being created purely to attract yeah. permanent settlers. Yep. While the period after 1867 saw a rise in international immigration, the movement did not fully take off until 1896. After a tough economic recession from 1873 to 1896, Canada thirsted for settlers. We thirsty. We thirsty for settlers. <laughs> With the help of Sir Clifford Sifton, Minister of the Interior from 1896 to 1905, immigrants began to find their way to the Canary 
Canary Prairies. <laughs> canary Have you ever heard of the Canary Prairies? <laughs> I meant the Canadian Prairies. I thought you were going to say like the Canary Islands. I was like, well, I'm so Islands. confused as to where this story is going. <laughs> How are we getting back to Canada? <laughs> Canada is a sweeping nation. Uh, sometimes other nations, too. This is a Canadian history podcast and also a Canary Islands history podcast. Whoa. Plot twist. <laughs> Sifton is known for promoting the immigration of non-traditional immigrants to Canada. So what they mean by yeah, that... Yeah, what does that mean? Is like not British. So they're like non-traditional. They're like, so, we're going to get spicy. We're going to invite the Ukrainians. <laughs> I was just going to say, so other people from Europe? People that are generally viewed as like, we don't... You're not like our first choice so like, to come like to Canada. Polish people? Polish people. Russian people? A lot people? of Eastern European. Okay, yeah. okay. Bors oh, yeah. in, in relation right. to our uh, JP episode. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Sifton strongly believed that sturdy European immigrants were the best settlers <laughs> for the challenging prairies because they're, they had a familiarity with agriculture or like rural lifestyles yeah. and the cold. climates. If, yeah, if you're yeah. coming from... Yeah, Eastern Europe. You come from Russia and you're like, this is nothing. <laughs> and all that. No one to oh my gosh. And they'd be able to make so much vodka. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, what is this whiskey? <laughs> Sorry to the country of Russia. Oh, I'm working on my accents. That's cool. This is going to be an accents podcast. <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel it. <laughs> I don't know what types of accents, but we're going to bring them out. So Sifton is best known for his statement that a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat born on the soil whose forefathers have been farmers for 10 generations with a stout wife and half a dozen kids is a good quality. That's America. I know, but... You know, the patriotism of that statement. Man, we want... We want stout wives and half a dozen kids. <laughs> Those are the kind of people cut out to work on the prairies. In <laughs> sheepskin. In sheepskin vests. Why was he worried about the fashion? I don't know. <laughs> Dior Summer Collection. 1895. Oh sheepskin my God. coats. I'm pitching that. <laughs> I'm pitching that. With Kirby Jenner as the main model. <laughs> Kirby. <laughs> That's gold it right was there. A time. That's gold. <laughs> so Sifton really does like the idea of urban populations being set up on the prairies, for they would congregate in cities instead of developing prairie homesteads. So his main idea is like, we need people to start farms, and if they're not going to start farms, we don't want them. <laughs> so no cities, no cities, just farms. So instead, he promoted the immigration of groups like Ukrainians, Hungarians, and Mennonites over the more mm. ethnically desirable, quote-unquote, British mm. immigrants who are, more, who are more urban. So like so British urban. immigrants are like, so urban. So urban. They're a bunch of city slickers. <laughs> we don't want your tap around here. <laughs> Give me that stout Ukrainian lady. <laughs> Just... With those child-bearing hips. I don't know what Sifton looks like, but I am picturing just Yosemite <laughs> Sam. Yes. But every time, every time we say Sifton, I just think of syphilis. And then I'm just like, <laughs> is that what he's not. promoting in the city, in the city centers? That's why he doesn't well. want cities. He's had some bad experiences when everybody's hanging out together. He's like, stay on your own farm. And no fucking. <laughs> None of that. 
Absolutely none of it. Keep it in your pants unless you're making one of those half a dozen kids. <laughs> That's why he brought the Mennonites out. <laughs> Absolutely. He didn't want any. Keep it in your skirts. Keep it in your yeah. long, long skirts. Your long, long underwear <laughs> under those long skirts. So urban settlement occurred anyways, of course. Of course. Um, in 1870, there were no urban centers existing in the prairies. Um, just tumbleweeds. Just tumbleweeds. And by 1911, there were 13 cities with populations of over 5,000 people. Oh, okay. So, okay. you know. There's some people there. We got a Regina. We got a Saskatoon. We got a Winnipeg. Yeah. We got little things happening. Little things happening. Little things happening. Thanks to intensive advertising and international immigration agencies after 1867, foreign populations began to settle the prairies. These immigrants fostered distinct ethnocultural pockets and diverse industries in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Ethnocultural pockets. That is smart talk. That is chef's kiss right there. You Thank just you, Pier 21 Museum, blew for my mind. giving me the word. Wow. <laughs> that was my primary source for this section for oh, anyone interested that's cool great great museum in halifax if you're ever in halifax it is a great museum 21. it's awesome there are actually some gems of museums in halifax yeah I we have say a that. lot of we're, cultural resources we're quite here. lucky with galleries and museums and uh yeah mm-hmm. we're very lucky but pier 21 is is pretty great yeah it's yeah. very pretty so the population in the West exploded. Winnipeg grew um, from a city of 20,000 in 1886 to 150,000 in 1911. Whoa. Yeah. That's so big. Saskatchewan's population grew by 1,124%. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's, That's a like, lot. Oh, like 11 times the size. Yeah. Of, and that was in a span of 20 years. From yeah. 1891 to 1911. Babies. Babies, yeah. <laughs> Thousands of diverse immigrants came to Canada between 1876 and 1914 for different reasons. For thousands of immigrants who were inspired to emigrate in search of greater economic opportunities mm-hmm. and improved quality of life, the Canadian uh, West represented seemingly infinite possibilities. And so... Th- this like category of immigrants is a lot of like Hungarians, French, Icelanders, yeah. Romanian, Chinese, and Ukrainians. Yeah. Economic and social situations in Europe were increasingly challenging in the mid to late 1800s, which I think is such an interesting period in history comparing it to now because like so the if we look at the Middle East and mm-hmm. sections of Eastern Europe today and we're like, oh, it's so turbulent. It's so turbulent. Gosh, I'm like so happy the West isn't like that. Yeah. In the 1800s, that was Europe. There was a revolution in like every country. There's like democratic. Really? Yeah. It's like well, it's yeah. I say I say really, but yes, I know these things. Yeah. I have watched Les Mis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am like, educated. The French, the French Revolution is kind of this like spark. It's kind of like Arab Spring, where yeah. it's like this spark that triggers similar revolutions. And it's this chain of revolutions that, like, you can ideologically connect all the way to, like, the Russian Revolution. Like, they're all yeah. logically, there are steps in between all of them. So Men singing, ladies lame mizzen, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. was, it was all happening. Suffering, must yeah, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I, I, so when people kind of, like, jeer at stuff happening in the Middle East, it's just, like, don't, like, I guess yeah. don't be skeptical about it in the sense that it'll never pan out into anything because, yeah. like, that's how your country was formed. Yeah. Just, and not even that long ago. Nope. Like, I think World War One like, erases so many people's, like, oh, memory of the definitely. 1800s. Oh, definitely. 
Definitely. Very turbulent period. Well, and I mean, Canada, we're so young. I know, like, yeah. Like, we are so young. Yeah. I mean, and people people don't realize that, like, some of these Middle Eastern countries, oh, have been around eons compared to us. Well, yeah, and they have, like, an identity that's yeah. lasted thousands of years. And um, have had really good periods and really oh, yeah. tumultuous periods. I don't, We just haven't hit one yet. Yeah, like, people laugh about the Crusades. It's kind of a meme, but, like, that's yeah. really just, like, Western barbarians going in and smashing, yeah. like, a really long, enlightened culture that was exactly. there for thousands of years. Exactly. Anyways, white people are great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what this podcast is about. The end. The end. <laughs> so political tensions in Europe, um, because they're so high in the 1800s, it encourages a lot of emigration. For Hungarians, Romanians, and Ukrainians, overpopulation and unemployment was the main factor that drove a lot of people I to Canada. I was thinking, what are people doing at this point? Because, you know, you've built Not your house, you're yeah. having your babies. Like, what are you doing? So a lot okay. of them, they're trying to farm. Right. Um, but there's certain, like, governmental issues and, like, cogs in the machine that's making that impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's so much, like, starvation that it's driving people out of those countries. Yeah. So these Sifton immigrants were hardy European farmers, well known for their ability to survive in harsh climates. After decades of landless tenant occupation on tiny farms in Europe, a free 160-acre homestead in the Canadian West seemed like almost too good to be true. Right. So Hungarians left Austria hungry after neglect from the government, and while many came to Canada, most of them do wind up moving to the United States. Oh, okay. Um, Romanians and Ukrainians, however, favored settlement in Canada and moved uh, in large numbers to Western Canada. Okay. Uh, Romanians began arriving in 1895, and like many other Sifton immigrants, the prairies were the first and ultimately their permanent home. Okay. Over 8,000 Romanians not only succeeded agriculturally, but also possessed trade labor skills, making them valuable prairie immigrants. Ukrainians were also an immigrant group valued for their skills. Between 1896 and 1914, an estimated 170,000 Ukrainians came to Western Canada and arranged Whoa. in block settlements. Yeah, like, there's a huge population of Ukrainians. That's crazy. Yeah. Block settlements were compact settlements populated by a specific ethnic group, which created a patchwork of cultural zones on the prairies. Though agricultural backwardness had hindered Ukrainian communities in Europe, it actually helped Ukrainian-Canadian populations succeed on the prairies, where there was a lack of agricultural development, which required pioneer farmers to, like, know these old techniques. So, like, essentially, they were back in Europe, and, like, other farmers in wealthier countries can outproduce them because they have more technology. Yeah. But, but on the prairies, they just have this, like, wealth of knowledge. Yeah. Of, like, what do you do when you have nothing? Everyone's on that playing field. Yeah, like, exactly. Not, oh, that's cool. So they actually really thrive in this situation. While Eastern Europeans represented a huge percentage of Western Canadian immigrants, there were also people coming from France, uh, Britain, China, Belgium, Russia. There were Mennonites. There were Americans, Scandinavians, Dutch, German, and black settlers who all came in meaningful numbers. Hmm. So we've got like this this beautiful little melting pot. People coming coming to the prairies. No, no, a mosaic. A mosaic. We're in Canada. America's a melting pot. We're a mosaic. They just all turn muddy. We're a salad. We're, ooh. (laughs) All these immigrants are associated with the symbol of Western settlement, the Saudi. 
Mm. So a sod houses or soddies were a common style of dwelling built in the prairies during the second half of the 19th century. When you first started off with that at the top of the episode, you were like, the Saudi. I thought you were trying to say like Saudi, like Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm trying to think of the heritage that talks about. Mm. Which I think the main thing is that we would never call anything a Saudi no, in Nova Scotia. but it's a Saudi. There's no sod houses, really. In Unless Nova it's Scotia. a sawed-off shotgun, you know? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> South Shore is a different breed. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, but a soddy. So that's what they call That's what house. they call a sod house. Hmm. Soddies were small structures that could be cheaply built out of blocks of sod and rudimentary house fittings. Sod refers to grass and the soil beneath it that is held together by the grass's roots. Yeah. So you're, like, cutting out bricks yeah. of grass and dirt (laughs) despite log cabins and shacks actually being more commonly used uh, on the prairies during western settlement sod houses have epitomized a romantic vision of hardship and survival Mm -hmm. during this period on the prairies Mm -hmm. we love to romanticize things here in canada (laughs) we love to be like life here's hard (laughs) want to want to see how hard i'll show you look at my my mud shack (laughs) walking up to school Uphill both ways, in the snowstorm, barefoot at that, <laughs> in my mud shack. <laughs> in my mud shack. That's where our school was. <laughs> Structures built using very similar materials and techniques as sod houses appear in many cultures across the globe and long predate European settlement in North America. Humans have used earth for shelter for much of their history, and the sod houses in Canada was a product of centuries of precedent. So mm. you have centuries before this, where people are building sod houses. Right. So different indigenous cultures I was gonna say, built different sod houses. Probably the indigenous people who were there way before these white people. Way before like, these Like, probably people. showed them how to do it. But, like, we don't <laughs> talk about that. We just talk about the Saudi. We just talk about the Saudi. <laughs> but, like, for example, like, an igloo is technically a type of sod house. Well, that's house. what I was thinking when you were talking about, like, cutting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you have, uh, there are many different kinds. Um, but, like, for example, a, an igloo is a cool. type of, kind of like a sod house. Yeah. The earliest Europeans who brought sod house traditions were the Vikings who were at Lanceau Meadows. So Ooh. we have evidence that there were a number of sod structures there, for example. Flash forward 800 years. In 1870, the Canadian government granted provincial status to Manitoba. And the following year entered into Treaty 1 with the Anishinaabek and Cree of southeastern Manitoba and Treaty 2 with Anishinaabek of southwestern Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Um, for Canadi- the Canadian government, the treaties were intended to facilitate both Euro-Canadian settlement on the west and the assimilation of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. In 1872, so following this, you have a plan put in place called the Dominion Lands Act, which is, this is going to be how right. we distribute land to settlers. Right. And so essentially, in exchange for a $10 fee and their agreement to establish a habitable residence on the land within three years, potential Mm -hmm. settlers could receive 65 hectares of land. So building a house and building a house fast is really important to ensuring you keep the land that the government's giving you. Right. So the program was heavily advertised by the Canadian government seeking people and they were advertising it as like the last best West. So they're like the American West done over that. We're so over the American (laughs) West. We were over that five years ago. It's so over. This is the last refuge of like, this is the frontier West. Exactly. It's not wild. It's just real. 
So for all these settlers who need to build a house and build a house quickly, sod houses are really easy to build. They're very cheap. Um, and obviously there's a lot of sod available. Yeah. <laughs> so if settlers like decided to accrue any costs in construction, it's going to mm-hmm. be for like comfort, comforts. So like windows, mm. hinges, like wooden floors. Non-necessary items. Exactly. Things that you don't <laughs> need. Which I love. It's like windows. Unessential. <laughs> yeah. Unessential. But if you want them, you can have them. Yeah. <laughs> so to build a sod house, mm-hmm. what you do. Tell me, Grace. I will let you know right now. Did you try this out? Did you go home to the Cape Breton Highlands and Absolutely make a little sod not. house? <laughs> God, no. I am a millennial and I live in my apartment. Yeah, and you I do. watch Netflix. Yeah, you do. Um, so blocks of sod were extracted first by plowing long, like 30 to 40 centimeter wide furrows into dry sloths, sloths. So essentially rows. Yeah. <laughs> and then sod, some 10 centimeters deep, was cut into about 60 to 80 centimeters in length. So now we have like all of these little blocks right. that we've cut out. Um, sod blocks were held together by overlapping and by their long fibrous grass roots. So you you layer them kind of like bricks, and then the thing itself, as long as the, the grass roots are long enough, it'll kind of like keep it together. Just, yeah, entangle. Keep it together. <laughs> keep it together. Placed grass side down, these blocks of sod were used as bricks that produced thick, tight walls. Mm. For the roof, boards or light poplar poles were usually used to cover... And then covered with sod, but sometimes they might be covered with hay or with straw thatch. Techniques vary depending on materials available right. or local peculiarities. So I'm assuming, like, if you come from a place where you thatch the roof, you're going to thatch the roof. Right. But if you don't come from a place where you thatch the roof, you're not going to thatch the roof. Yeah. The average house was about 432 square feet. Okay. So kind of small. <laughs> Livable. Livable, though. So, yeah. You know. Um, the minim- which was the minimum size required by the homesteading law. Okay. So it's not a coincidence that they're yeah. that size. Um, and they're generally just one-room structures. Yeah. Interior walls might be covered by paper or cloth or plastered with a clay mixture and whitewashed. Mm. Houses were often partitioned into rooms using blankets or cow hides. Unfortunately, sod roofs tended to leak yeah, with one day's rain. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if like if it's over one day's rain, that's too much. That's it's gonna too leak. much rain. Yeah. Whitewashing somewhat alleviated damp conditions outside. Despite their basic form, sod houses were cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Yeah. And that's the biggest draw of them is that right. like sod they is a insulate. really great insulator. Yeah. So yeah. especially in the prairies where you probably have the most extreme temperature range in the country. Right. And not a lot of rain. So I'm not seeing like a huge, like, I mean, I feel like that would be an inconvenience with the roof, but I mean, yeah. like it's less rain than if you're like out east. Yeah. I don't know how much it rains in the prairies, to be honest. Well, I mean, I just always picture fires. That's true. So I feel like it doesn't rain as much as it rains out <laughs> as here. As it should. <laughs> Ultimately, though, like, sod houses are intended to be temporary settlements. Okay. As you eventually are going to build your actual home. But right. you need to build a structure so you can keep your farm. And obviously keep a roof over your heads. Right. <laughs> so there was a survey conducted in 1915 that I find super, super interesting. Okay. It was, so it was conducted by the... I believe super, the, super interesting folks. 
This is you heard it here. <laughs> Grace McNutt's idea of what is super, super interesting. Um, it was a survey conducted in the uh, uh, province of Saskatchewan. It's called the Pioneering Housing, uh, Pioneer Housing Saskatchewan Archives Board Questionnaire Number 9. Okay. <laughs> wow. Thrilling. Buckle up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, it, it surveyed 127 people who lived in sod houses or had built sod houses. Okay. And so they're trying to gather this information of like... So people were still living in sod houses in like 1915. Uh, so this is 1950. And oh, 50. it's mostly like when they, they were kids, they lived in a sod house. Okay, okay. So the people answering the survey tend to be a bit older and they're right. just like... I remember my dad building it. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, and so they asked them, like, questions about how the house was built, so, like, mm -hmm. materials used, like, the size of the houses, et cetera, um, and then also, like, what was life like for you growing up in a sod house? Right. And so this survey gives a really interesting perspective on the Saudi. Yeah. Um, and credit to Sandra Rowling's Magnuson. Uh, she wrote an article called Sod straw, logs, and mud, building a home on the Canadian prairies. And so it's her article that I like reference for a lot of oh, this. Cool. So she, she finds this survey and then I just steal her idea. Um, but thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Sandra. You are. Um, so this segment, I just like to call funny stories from sod houses. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. For those who built with sod, knowledge and or experience of how to properly use this mater natural material to construct a stable and secure dwelling helped to ensure that the settler and his family would be able to live comfortably in their home for many years. That's the that's the goal, I hope, the goal. of living, <laughs> of building any house. The goal is we don't die. <laughs> All right, kids, let's do it. I love you very much. <laughs> Okay, Dad. <laughs> Deciding to build with sod was also a wise choice, given the advantages of being able to live in a dwelling that was known for keeping its residents warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Yeah. Well-packed sod acted... That's what my duvet says it'll do. I bought it from Ikea. <laughs> Is it a sod duvet? It's not a sod duvet. I don't think. <laughs> Oh, it's all in like Swedish, so I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it is. I don't know what's inside it. Inspired by the sword uh, residences of Swedes. <laughs> no, imagine you just wake up and you're like, I ordered this like weighted blanket from Amazon, <laughs> and it's kind of dirty. This <laughs> is <just> all dirt, <laughs> leaking dirt on you every day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The well-packed sod acted as an excellent insulating unit and reduced the effect of extreme outdoor temperatures of the prairies. Mm. I bet it smelled great, too. Ugh. Well. Dirt. Dirt. Must. I kind of like the smell of dirt. I don't. Not I, to I be mean, weird. You, but you wouldn't. <laughs> you'd get over it. Like, you wouldn't yeah. even notice it. You're just surrounded by it. Yeah. So I guess you just wouldn't notice. Yeah. And it's not mud. Like you said, they had, like, whitewashed usually the insides. Or, Sometimes, like, put something yeah. up on the walls to, yeah. like, yeah. try to make it, like, a home. Make it homey. Make it homey. Yeah. It's <laughs> just, like, the next, like, HGTV show in Canada <laughs> is, like, sod house <laughs> renovations. It's like, I really want to make the inside walls red. No. You white whitewash. That's it. Only you only get white, so that's everyone it. looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> this feature was an important one to many settlers, as it directly related to their survival and comfort. And in fact, many individuals sought to build sod houses when they first arrived on the Canadian Western Prairies, rather than deciding to build traditional log homes. So mm -hmm. they're like, "I have the choice, and I'm gonna build a sod house. I'm not gonna build a log Bitch. house." Bitch. 
In order to build a Saudi, the settler and his family needed to mark out a flat piece of land where they wished to build their house and then search for at least one acre of wire tough and woody sloth grass and buffalo grass. Mm. So that's the kind of grass we're looking for. Sloth and buffalo. Sloth grass and buffalo grass. Slow and large. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I don't know how grass works. I don't know. What's grass? (laughs) These long-standing hard grasses were the best for building soddies as the deep roots would keep the sod from crumbling. Mm. In addition, such grasses held moisture. Moisture was needed to ensure the grass blocks, when set upon one another, would stick together. So you do need some right. dampness. You need some damp grass. Some, it's got to be moist. Once a suitable amount of grass was found, the settler would need to devise a method for cutting and separating the sod from the earth. As explained by Betty Iredale, whose family homesteaded in the Bengof area, Bengof area mm-hmm. in 1908... Her father used a hand-guided plow drawn by two horse teams. Quote, he thrust an adapted plowshare some three inches into the ground. It loosened a ribbon of earth. Cut crosswise, this supplied building blocks about the size of 12 bricks, if arranged three at a time to form an oblong. So they're like really long bricks. Yeah. And so you like, it's almost like strips of turf. Yeah. Like you would roll out on a football well, field. Well, I'm thinking about like um, when people like put sod down at a new house or something. Yeah. Or like you tear sod. Like I'm thinking of them like that. Yeah. But so probably like, a bit thicker and less uniform. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> thicker and like like hard grass, not like yeah. the soft blue grass that we have. Right. Um, so that's what they're like loosening up and that's what they're going to use. Another pioneer, Evelyn McLeod, recounted her family's experience with cutting sod blocks for the building of their home. She states, after doing so, he took a knife and cut long strips of sod into blocks about 32 inches long. Hmm. Uh, Evelyn, her mother, and her siblings would then take the cut pieces of sod and haul them over to the construction site. Okay. So it's like also a family affair. It's like everybody's involved in building the house. Right. Once the bricks were collected, they could be assembled, grass side down, and using timber as a frame, and then they would leave spaces for windows. Oh, okay. So it's a pretty, if, like, But they don't need windows. They don't need <laughs> windows. I think it's more like if you wanted to put glass in your windows. Oh, okay. I think most people just put, like, some kind of space there, like a right. hole. But if you wanted to put glass, obviously, that's going to be an extra okay. expense. As for roofs, settlers made toddies with log, timber, thatch roofs, all kind of roofs. Right. Any kind of roof you can imagine. We're going to put that on a, to- a sod. Any kind of roof you can imagine. Any kind of roof you can imagine. Inside the home, the ceiling was improved to make living conditions within the home habitable, particularly during the rainy season. So there must be a wet season. But I also love it's like it was improved to make it habitable. It's not even like more comfortable. It's just livable. Just just not terrible. Just not making you want to just end it all today. (laughs) (laughs) Something. Given that the greatest disadvantage to a sod roof is the fact that it's not waterproof, um, efforts were made by some settlers to make certain that they would live in a dry environment during rainstorms. So they would usually line the ceiling with canvas, oilcloth, or wallpaper to catch the water that made its way through the sod roof uh, oh, as a common like solution. Oh, kind of like a tent, and then they'd like probably dump that. Like it would collect like that? Like it would collect, yeah. and then they would get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. not like... 
they can't make the roof waterproof, so right. they'll just like catch all the water and like yeah. canvas and then like dump that yeah. in a particular way. That's what I need for my car. I have a leaky car. <laughs> you do have a leaky car. <laughs> Poor little car. <laughs> um, so, however, sometimes, often even, often. these efforts tended to fail. Oh. Um, so, for yeah. example, Harriet Parkinson's recounted how her mother tried to protect her family from rain by wallpapering the ceiling. The rainwater seeped through the sod and then created a bulge in the wallpaper. So mm-hmm. that's it, like, collecting. And Harriet, being a curious child, came along and poked the bulge with a fork and a huge <laughs> bulge of water poured into the hole. With a fork. Just like, uh, chink. <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine as a kid, like, I wonder what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and her parents are like, we have raised an idiot. It's like, oh, my. God, Harriet. <laughs> no, Harriet, no. Um, oh. Delia Crawford also had like a similar story. She explained that her family had to deal with 52 straight days of rain. Oh, okay. Which is just awful. That sounds so depressing. And during this time, they were just confined to the side. 52 dates of dates. <laughs> That's the next movie. <laughs> 52, 52, 52 dates. dates of rain. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that sounds awful. Ugh. Every day you wake up and it's still raining, but you don't remember. Huh. Welcome to Seattle. <laughs> Welcome to Seattle. <laughs> so during this time, they were confined to the Saudi, walking through inches of rainwater on the floor, living in wet clothes and sleeping in wet deads. Just like, oh, like you can't escape the rain. I just I hate when my things are like wet or damp, like if my yeah. socks get wet. In my shoes, mm-hmm. I'm done. Like, I hate that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to have to call an audible on the day. Yeah. I'm going to have to cancel <laughs> my not, socks or what. Not today. Yeah. I, like, I grew up with a father who has a deep fear of flooding. Um, <laughs> just, and it's not, like, irrational. Just, like, okay. a very strong fear of flooding. So, like, when I got my apartment, for example, like, he's like, oh, good. It's, a, it's on a hill. It won't flood. I was like, it's also on the third floor yeah, of the building. Yeah, I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> I think I'll be okay. But now, as an adult, like, I increasingly understand, like, a flood is awful. It ruins. Yeah. It, can, it really just destroys everything you have. Yeah. So, Yeah. Sorry to anybody who's ever had to experience a flood. Ugh. Natasha, like my best friend Natasha, she had yeah. her house flooded and they like lost so much. And That's it's just brutal. so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So Delia remembered that not only was it claustrophobic, it was hard on her family's like morale and health, obviously. Um, yeah. Conditions eventually improved when clearer skies prevailed and the sod roof began to finally dry out. Oh, but it would take forever. I know. Yeah. Even then, the smell emanating from the wet dirt, wet clothing, mm. and damp furniture mm. clung mm. in the air of the home for days afterwards. Mm. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. Was this home? Is this home damp? <laughs> it this, smells it damp. Just, it just, it, it feels, let me just, yeah, it feels Ooh. really damp. Really damn. This is the kind of home that they would show you like now and they're just like in downtown Toronto and they're like, it's in the downtown core. (laughs) The walls are made of dirt. It's not legally zoned and it's fully damp on the inside. It's (laughs) $500,000. They're like, wow, what is the deal? (laughs) 
<laughs> it has windows. It's but in it the windows. downtown core. Yeah, you guys like won't even need to p- have a good car anymore if you don't want to. <laughs> you could just stay in restaurants all night. You'll never have to be home. It's not really a door. It's more of a tarp that we <laughs> lay in front of the entrance and it doesn't lock. <sighs> But we haven't had problems for about two weeks. (laughs) You know, the cockroaches aren't a fan of the dampness. And the cockroaches are (laughs) non-negotiable. They stay with the house. It's kind of theirs. (laughs) You guys are the tenants. The cockroaches are the landlords. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we'll take it. (laughs) Oh, God. So in terms of length of time it required to build a sod house, there was a huge range of answers. So some people were like, yeah, it took like a week to build it. One guy said it took him two days to build a sod house. Um, Others said it took like three months. So I'm guessing that's just based on either the time of year that you show up or like your experience building sod houses. I mean, as a... (laughs) As a novice sod house builder, builder, I would say (laughs) that uh, it would depend on weather conditions, size of house, you know, temperature of the sod at the time that day. Yeah, the position of mercury in my natal chart. (laughs) Where a lot of factors. Where my moon is, you know. Where my moon. (laughs) Where it's residing. My moon is going to be sitting in a chair while you guys build me a sod house. Precisely. Like, have you ever watched that? Wait, that's the HGTV show. Novice Sod Builders. (laughs) (laughs) Novice Saudi Builders. We take two white girls who've lived in cities or towns their whole lives, throw them on the prairies, and they have to build a sod house. HGTV would pick this shit up tonight. Yeah, like it would be like Pioneer Women. Yeah. That's already a show, isn't it? I don't think... I thought Pioneer Women. Anyways, something Maybe. like that. Oh. And we would go out and we'd have to build but a sod house. But we'd be the hosts. Oh, yeah. We don't. I don't want to do oh, it. Fuck no. No, <laughs> we'll just we'll just comment. Yeah. And we'll like ask expert witnesses of like, when you grew up in <laughs> a sod house, what was that like? And we'll be like, where? We're just talking to a tombstone. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll be like Harriet. We'll be like, what's that bald right there? <laughs> it's like, give my fork. <laughs> That's like the dramatic cut, though. It's like us entering the house, and we're like, oh, no, there's a bulge. <laughs> there's a bulge in the wallpaper. And then you hear the, and then you hear the hymnal choir. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, gosh. Oh, no, one of the contenders is almost having a baby. <laughs> oh, never mind. She's fine. Everything's all good. Oh, she just ate too much lasagna for dinner. <laughs> a lasagna baby. <laughs> There's no Italian immigrants. There's no Italian immigrants. It's like cabbage rolls (laughs) for the little Ukrainians. Oh, pierogies. Ooh. Ukrainian food is good. I feel like it's a very underrated culinary um, culture, but I like Ukrainian food. And I especially think here. Like, uh, there's not a lot of Mm. Ukrainian culture that I'm aware of, and I mean, I'm pretty damn sheltered, so (laughs) there couldn't be, but in the (laughs) East Coast, what I've come across, there's not a lot of Ukrainian, like, like, I don't know if there's a Ukrainian restaurant in Halifax. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, there's a big Ukrainian community in Sydney, like, where I'm from. Oh, that's interesting. Like, Polish-Ukrainian, we have, like, a Ukrainian church and stuff, and Mm. they have, like, they always do, like... Really? Yeah, there's a big Ukrainian... In Cape Breton? Yeah. There's a big Ukrainian community there, because they all went to work at the steel plant. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. When just build a big thing, and they will come. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't take anything away from this podcast... 
take away that. If you build a big, big thing, thing, the thing. Ukrainians will come. I feel like that's kind of Canadian town's mantras because they're mm. like, we're going to build a giant blueberry and people will visit. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't build anything in Windsor. They just called it the little town of big firsts. Yeah. You know, they just put big in the title. They just put big in the title. <laughs> so people who answered the survey were also asked, like, did anything funny happen while you were building it slash living there? And boy, did they respond. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> so Mrs. Gust Goobard. Goobarood. <laughs> okay. That was the funny part, right? That's the funny part. <laughs> uh, discussed a predicament that she and her family faced during their first winter in their sod house. Mm-hmm. The sod roof began to seriously sag because of heavy snowfall. Mm-hmm. Before the roof actually caved in, the family quickly worked to rectify the problem. A brace was quickly installed in the middle of their 14 by 16 foot home so that the ceiling did not collapse inwards. Mm-hmm. Other respondents, like Hilda Rogers, also reported on dire circumstances experienced by her family members. Uh She described how her father and brother had come home to the homestead by wagon and oxen from Saskatoon and were overtaken by a big prairie fire in September of 1905. Oh, this isn't funny. Next, a snowstorm, and then they were living in a tent. Oh, (laughs) It's just like, well, there was a fire, and then a snowstorm, and then we lived in a tent. <laughs> the thoughts were frozen. So sh- that's a really crappy weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that happening in like three days. I'm sure she met like over the course of a season, but like, oh, I imagine oh no, days. I totally pictured like two days. <laughs> two days. I was like, fire, snow, tent, tent. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. So the sods were frozen when they plowed them for the shack, and therefore they did not um, fit as they should have. So, mm-hmm. like, they didn't build it at the right time of year, which that's what happens when you're a novice sod house builder. <laughs> like we would be. Like we would be. Um, rather than focusing on winter-related difficulties, another respondent, Mrs. Day, commented on the hazard of prairie fires. As she stated, a great prairie fire went through burning the prairies for miles and miles burning one of our oxen while we were building the house. Oh, no. So these aren't really funny. It's just, like, anything interesting. And they're like, well, it was terrible. (laughs) And then we lived in a tent. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories. So Thomas Perry recounted another kind of problem that his family encountered um, when their wooden door had not yet been constructed. So they've just got a tarp over the door. doorless. As he wrote... Who came inside... I had not got the door in the front and just used a carpet to cover the opening when one night I arose from sleep by the dog barking and mother and sister calling out to me that a skunk was in the house. Oh, mother of Mary. The smell was terrible. It would just cling to the grass and everything. (laughs) No one knew where the matches of the lamp was, so I had to just get up and take a chance. I finally got a light, and I saw the skunk near the door. I got my twenty-two rifle (laughs) and shot him. (laughs) Oh, man. We had to plaster the floors and walls with cement to get rid of the smell. So it's not even a sod house anymore. It's just like... Yeah, we've just. What are those called? They're um, like. Uh, so so this is funny though. So they have the resources to have a cement house, but they're choosing a sawdust. I guess so. I guess because oh, it insulates. Oh, because it insulates so well. And also, you can scrub off the smell of skunk. Yeah. 
David McGuinness stated that in the winter, a snowdrift on the side of the Saudi was over 12 feet high. Oh, Their oxen, which had become snowblind, walked up the snow <laughs> to the roof of the Saudi, <laughs> and then proceeded to walk across and fell through the roof of the house. <laughs> no! David did not elaborate on how they solved the problem I'm of getting it. No, 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 I'm imagining this oxen flying through and being like, Oh, sorry, guys. I don't know how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he just trots out. Well, so goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so he did not elaborate on how they uh, both got the animal out yeah. and then how they fixed the huge hole in the middle of winter. In the snow, in yeah. Wellwood Rattray, which, ooh, that's a name. Rattray. Wellwood Rattray. <laughs> <laughs> also related a similar problem of a bovine falling through the roof. Oh, so no. apparently this ha- is happening all the time. Well, um, it's just like a hill, and it would smell like a hill, like to an animal. Yeah. Like, it's just a hill. It's do, just, do, it's do, just do, another do, mountain do, to get over. <laughs> <laughs> so he wrote, the sod house we had was dug out, poles stood on end, and dirt banked up against the poles. So mm-hmm. that's like the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cow managed to climb up the bank up to the roof, and yeah. she dropped through the roof into one of the bedrooms, <laughs> and we let her out by the door. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's like happening all the time of like animals climbing up sod but roofs. Imagine, so, okay, so I thought cows were like big. But I didn't know until I went to the Dalhousie Agricultural Campus last year uh, yeah. with a group of kids for a program I was working on. Um, and so these were like high school, junior high kids. Um, and we went to the agricultural campus and we were looking at the dairy cows. They're freaking huge. Oh, okay. Like yeah. they are I thought you were going to say, like, I thought they were big. And then I found out how they're not no. big. I, like, I thought okay. they were big, but I found out that they are like, when, when, like, like a ton. Well, when someone calls a girl a cow, like, that's really awful. <laughs> like, like, I knew it was like awful, but like, that's not cool because Installed cows the century. are huge. Like, they're, oh my God. So I'm just picturing like this cow. They're also like very mobile. Like, no, they don't run really. No, <laughs> no, Just they, like it takes, like, how do you not notice that it's going up the roof? <laughs> like, it's gonna take a while for it to get up there, I imagine. I told you, they're doing all kinds of grass in the prairies. <laughs> <laughs> so, some respondents highlighted the problem they encountered during the building process. They indicated that building the Saudi was difficult mm-hmm. and, uh, they were inexperienced and it often rained, so they had bad weather during their right. rain times. Right. Okay, so I was totally wrong. It apparently rains all the time in the prairie. I guess there's a wet season. I don't know okay. exactly when it is, but yeah. there's a wet season of some kind. Right. Others, such as Margaret McGinnis, commented on the multitude of mosquitoes that were constantly biting Ugh. her family while they tried to build. So that's what I know the prairies for. Yeah. Like, the prairies to me are like the coldest of the cold in the mm. winter and then during the summer it's just a cloud of mosquitoes yeah, yeah. um which come out east here live by the ocean where the mosquitoes are greatly reduced. lowered yeah. yeah we got we got mosquitoes but they're not like i don't know all my, the time. my mom that's like her draw to get people to come to lunaberg she's like there's no mosquitoes and it's <laughs> it's actually it's very like proportionally low yeah. compared to other places yeah 
So others reported that it was difficult to control the oxen and cows that they would Mm -hmm. often wander off if they were not attended to. So you've Mm. also got all this livestock, which is your primary investment. Right. Um, So it's important that you keep an eye on them, but also you have to build a house. Yeah. Some remembered having to live in tents while they were constructing their homes, while others focused on the amount of labor that was required to try and winterize their houses. Right. Which they show in the Heritage Minute. Like, I do think the Heritage Minute does a good job of being like, it's it's just a couple building their sod house, and they live in a tent while they're waiting for it to be built. They have to add in the, like, almost giving birth thing to give it some flair. Just to be, yeah. Just to be extra. (laughs) Oh, the 90s. (laughs) Banking up the outside of the walls of the Saudi with stones, dirt, straw, flax, or horse and cattle manure was an unenviable task that entailed a strenuous amount of work, as did building windbreaks to protect the Saudis from strong Saskatchewan winds. Planting trees all around the homestead, or at least on three sides, was an arduous process. So this is all in an attempt to not have the house blow down. Right. As discussed by Thomas Perry, by the time he had finished developing his homestead, he had planted over 2,000 trees on his property in order to protect the buildings and crops from wind. Wow. That's insane. That is insane. <laughs> we need him today. Yes. We Bring need back more Thomas people Perry. like Thomas. Thomas Perry is the guy who also shot the skunk, so. Oh. He's my kind of guy. <laughs> I like Thomas trees Perry. and shooting skunks. <laughs> While the previously noted... Save the trees, <laughs> kill the skunks. I like it. I'm going to yeah. put that on the t-shirt. <laughs> That's, idea. That's a great t-shirt. We came up with two t-shirts today. Yeah. What was the other one? Oh, yeah. We're not talking about your grandma. We're not hating, We're on, not your hating on your grandma. We're not hating on your grandma. And <laughs> save the trees, trees, kill the skunks. Yeah. Kill skunks, not trees. We'll, yeah, like <laughs> we'll, we'll workshop it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll keep you posted. While the previously noted respondents provided particular details on the difficult times they had living in or building their Saudi, other respondents like Kenneth Smith were much more succinct in their answers. Mm -hmm. Summing up the totality of the experiences of stripping sod from the earth, creating the walls with heavy sod bricks, building a proper roof, and dealing with the labor-intensive hardships of day-to-day living on the prairies, Kenneth simply stated that the entire grueling and demanding process was, quote, a lot of hard work, end quote. Mm, That was his whole answer to, like, everything was just... A lot of hard work. Okay, Kenna. (laughs) Get out of here with your modesty. Get out of here. It's all that hard work that has made the Saudi such an icon of the prairies. Mm -hmm. Today, the Addison Sod House in Kindersley, Saskatchewan, built between 1909 and 1911. It still exists? It's a National Historic Site, and so you can still visit it. It's like one of the few standing sod houses. I don't know if I want to. (laughs) From everything I've heard, I'm not, I'm sure. not sure the horrors that happen yeah. there. Um, so there's like a few specific like things that make it different that has helped it survive to the present. Okay. So like they added like thicker walls, and there's certain like methodologies they used to build it that that has made it so sustainable. But if you want to visit a sod house, huh. you still can. Cool. Yeah. Well, you're also going to be able to visit the sod house that Grace and I are going to build on the Cape Breton oh. Islands. The Cape Breton <laughs> Islands, or on our TV show coming oh, yeah. to you this winter. Yeah. Novice Saudis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to workshop the name, too, a little yeah. bit. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that's that's the Saud house. Very cool. An, a very, a, an icon that I think is very regionally Canadian. And like, also. I would never associate it with oh, it. Oh, no. But it's, it, our um, girl that we curl with, yeah, Ashley, she was Ashley. like, when are you going to do Saud houses? And I was like. <laughs> okay, <laughs> girl from Winnipeg. <laughs> but now I've done it. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And it is a great heritage minute. Like, it's, it's a. It's a captivating one. It's interesting. I remember it. Mm-hmm. It had a good amount of drama. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. It was cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I liked that. Thank you. That was a good one. Thank you. Yay, Grace. That was fun. I was a little worried that it would be boring. Because, you know, whenever it's just like a thing, you kind of got to get like spicy with it. How could talking about sod be dry? It's so moist. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll leave it on that. (laughs) (sighs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast, everyone. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, If you aren't already, which you should be, please go follow us on our social media channels. We're on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and on Facebook as the same name. Uh, and then we're also on Twitter at The Minute Women. Uh, then we also have a great website. It's full of fun pictures of Grace and I and every episode and write-ups about us and the episodes. Uh, and those are over on www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. So check those out, please. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, download the episodes, rate and review the podcast. Right now. Right now. Do it. If you are on Apple Podcasts, you're basically the only platform that really allows you to write, like, reviews and stuff. We'll write you a review on what kind (laughs) of person you are if you write us a review for our podcast. That's how valuable it is. Yeah. Actually, if you, like... Write up a review, take a little screenshot of it when you write it, and then like yeah. send a DM us. We'll like send you like big, big like hugs and kisses. Big Thank hugs you. and kisses. So, 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 so yeah. much. If you're not a touchy feely person, we'll send you big thumbs up. Yeah, a huge, yeah. huge thumbs up. Huge. You know, we don't we don't want to make it like too much, but like we're maritimers. So we yeah. just like yeah. want to be your family. We like, we like to hug. <laughs> <laughs> and just a reminder that we put out episodes every single Wednesday, Minute Women Wednesday. So make sure that if you listen to the podcast, share it on your Instagram, share it on your Facebook or your Twitter tag us and then like word of mouth is the best recommendation so tell all of your friends and yeah. they can join us in our cool little minute women gang that's going to have really cool merchandise really soon we promise we promise and we're also going to have guests on the podcast yes. really soon really it's soon. all in the works yeah so yeah things are things are happening over here at uh, minute women podcast <laughs> through bnb media so yeah yeah thanks so much guys thanks bye bye